Welcome back, everybody. Here at the practice squad, we, just like all of you, are powering through this quarantine. No sports. And we figured, you know, we could talk about free agency some more. But then we realized free agency is boring as hell and nobody wants to hear about it. So basically, we're moving forward with something we had planned to do later on in the summer. Uh, so basically, we're going to be doing part one of a, guess for best way to put it would be a documentary series. Uh, we're going to start with the 2004 University of Utah football team. My voice is going to be the one you're going to be hearing the most, most likely, but I do still have my co-host Jeff. Say hi. Hello. Jeff's here. And Easy is still producing. Whoa. There he is. He's barking. Alright. And uh, we hope you guys enjoy this. This is actually something we worked pretty hard on. This isn't something we threw together last minute like I made it sound. Um, but yeah, this is going to be our first part. Uh, like I said, it's going to be a deep dive. Uh, so expect multiple episodes on this. And yeah, let's go ahead and dive into it. I know exactly what you need in your life. More practice squad. So give us a follow on Instagram at practice underscore squad underscore podcast. Our posts are phenomenal. Our stories, probably even better. And our hairlines, undefeated. Again, that's practice underscore squad underscore podcast. Check it out and give us a follow. Squad out. You ain't seen nothing yet. That was the bold ad campaign used by the Utah football game to start the 2004 season. This was something that made a lot of Utah fans really nervous because Utah had never been a contender in a national sense. Under head coach Ron McBride, the team had made great strides. Uh, they had outperformed their expectations, but they had never gotten there on a national level. Um, but all of that would change in 2003 with the hiring of Urban Meyer. So, a little bit before we go into it. The 2004 Utah football team changed not just the national perception of the Utes as a team, but effectively the landscape of college football overall. Because before this time, there wasn't teams. When well, let's see, let me take that back a little bit. So when we started the BCS, there wasn't teams coming out of the mid majors, the non-power conferences. That just wasn't happening. You have to go back to the old the old style where you know you had teams like SMU or BYU contending for national championships. But that was back in the old format when a lot of your national championship was determined not necessarily by your record or your games, but rather by votes placed at the end of the season. So with this new format, there had never been a team like Utah. There had never been a non-power conference team to play in a high-caliber BCS Bowl. There have been a few teams that came close. Um, in the late 90s, both Tulane and Marshall went undefeated. They pulled off undefeated seasons. But neither of them were given the opportunity to play in big bowl games, uh, basically due to BCS favoritism. Neither of these teams were flashy enough. And you would think, given you know, specifically Tulane, located in Louisiana, if they went undefeated, they'd have the chance to participate in a big bowl. So, like I said, 2003, Urban Meyer's first year with the team. 
And in his first year, he led the team to a 10-2 record, uh, Liberty Bowl victory in which they beat Southern Mississippi 17-0, and finished off ranked in the top 25 with a final poll ranking of 21. Uh, Utah was Urban's second job as a head coach. Um, in 2001, he had been hired at Bowling Green University. Uh, this is after spending, you know, from 1985 through 2000 working as a everything from a high school head coach up through uh, offensive coordinator, wide receivers coach, things like that. Um, and so in 2001, he took over at Bowling Green, and he was inheriting a team that had gone two and nine the previous season. And what he did was he put together one of the biggest single season turnarounds uh, really that I've ever seen. He took them from being two and nine in 2000 to a team that averaged over 30 points a game and went eight and three in 2001. Now 2001, that was a time when there was a lot fewer bowl games. And nowadays is like, I think there's like something like 44 bowl games in the early 2000s. There was nowhere near that much. So Bowling Green did not get selected for a bowl game. Uh, the next season though, in 2002, Urban Meyer, again, was able to uh, really implement his spread offense. Um, it's what we've seen him do everywhere he's been. He runs the same or a similar spread option everywhere he goes. Um, you'll see a lot of shotgun plays, and you'll see a mix of under center, wildcat packages, things like that. And he was really able to use that with uh, Bowling Green's quarterback, Josh Harris, who in 2002 had a combined total of 39 touchdowns. Uh, 19 passing, 20 rushing, and was able to get them to a 9-3 and record, which was almost looking better than that. Uh, they started off the season 8-0, but by the time they got to 8-0, injuries and the lack of depth uh, led them to finishing 9-3. and One thing I want to make with this, uh, so something that's super interesting with Urban Meyer, honestly the turnaround that he had with Bowling Green is super interesting, but uh, what's something that's really impressive is that he averaged... Um, really a win percentage of about uh, 7.75 with Bowling Green at his time there. He went 8-3 and three his first year and then 9-3 and three his second year, uh, which kind of comes to a total to a 17-6, and six, which if you're thinking about a, you know, a first-time coach uh, taking a head coaching position, that is extremely impressive, and Joe's going to get into it here in a little bit, but also he keeps up the streak with Utah. Um, he ended up having an uh, average win percentage of 854. Uh, whether you're a fan of Urban Meyer or not, the dude obviously has proven that he's a qualified head coach. So I have a question about the Bowling Green turnaround. So am I to understand that before Urban Meyer got there, they were not drinking milk? And then once they started drinking milk, they got really good? Or like, what, what made the team become all of a sudden much better? Well, I think with the milk thing, I'm pretty sure you're confusing Urban Meyer for Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> Because that was Jim Harbaugh's crazy ass that was doing the milk thing. That wasn't Urban Meyer. I was really making a joke about Got Milk because I'd forgotten about Harbaugh, crazy man. So, yeah, cool. Oh, that was like that, that joke had layers. It was like an onion. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, Urban Meyer, much better head coach than Jim Harbaugh. But also much more controversial. And we will get to that later in the series. Don't you worry about that. Um, all right. So, moving into 2003, um, Urban started off the season with a different quarterback than Alex Smith, which some a lot of people don't realize. Alex Smith took over uh, 
midway through the second game of the season, a loss to Texas A&M. Um, held the starting job through the rest of the year. He made 10 starts that year. In those 10 starts, Alex Smith threw for 15 touchdown passes to just three interceptions. Not not numbers that are going to jump off at you. Like You don't look at those and go, wow. But still, very solid performer. He also ran for five touchdowns, uh, 20 total for the year, so averaging two his game. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving on from that. So Alex Smith takes over. Uh Goes 9-1. and one. Um, By the way, you want to take a random guess at who his only loss was? Bowling Green. No. Alex Smith's only loss as a starting quarterback at Utah was to New Mexico. Yeah, Utah was ranked. They had just barely gotten ranked. Um, and then they got upset by New Mexico at home, 47-35. to 35. That sounds like a very weird game. It's You got to remember, New Mexico wasn't always a dumpster fire i'm referring to the school obviously the state is a dumpster fire we all know that uh it's a turquoise dumpster fire um but their football team was relevant for a period of time somehow who made the football team relevant was there any players that we would recognize in new mexico no god no okay so no lobos that i would know no no all right well back to it so in urban meyer's coaching staff we also had uh Five people who would go on to be head coaches. You've got, of course, his defensive coordinator, Kyle Whittingham, um, as well as the offensive coordinator, Mike Sanford, who went on to be a head coach at Western Kentucky. Uh, Dan Mullen, who went on to be a head coach uh, at Colorado State and is currently the head coach of Florida. And then, sorry, I guess I miscounted. Uh, There's five, including Urban, but so four under him. And then the fourth is Gary Anderson, who is currently... um, making Utah State play worse than they should be. Thank you, Gary. I didn't say they all should be head coaches. I just said some of them are. At one point, Gary Anderson was a pretty reliable head coach. At one point, he made Utah State really good and then got a coaching job at Wisconsin. And then from there, it was just been kind of like the downslope of a roller coaster and just really going fast, just down into a pit of fire. Yeah, like there's a Balrog there or something, you know, like fire and stuff, man. You leaned in like you had something to say, and then you leaned back. <laughs> like, you can't do that. If you're going to say something, you got to say something. I'm going to leave this in. I, 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 you know what? That's fine. Don't edit it out. Let's go ahead and leave that Balrog thing in there. I don't know what a Balrog is, everybody. Don't tell me, either. <laughs> okay. All right. So... Entering the season, obviously, Alex Smith, starting quarterback. Everybody knows him. Um, The thing is, a lot of people don't know some of the uh, players around Alex. Um, On the offense, he was joined by a really solid running back duo, Marty Johnson, Quinton Ganther, and then his leading receivers, Paris Warren and Steve Savoy. Uh, They made a very, very dangerous offense. Because those five all super talented and they all demand uh star level attention from the defense and then you've got other guys like travis latondres um even eric weddle who at the time was playing a wildcat quarterback so a lot of guys on the team were kind of going unnoticed and would have these pop out games where they just put up huge numbers because that's what urban was able to do he would just sneak a guy in that you forgot about and you wouldn't be prepared for him and he'd just go off on you and let's see. So in addition to the spread offense that Urban Meyer was running, uh, Kyle Whittingham had been given complete control of the defense. 
And what he was doing was he was running a very aggressive blitz package. And the reason he was able to do that is he had um, maybe the best safety duo in school history, uh, which featured an eventual NFL All-Pro in Eric Weddle and Utah's current defensive coordinator in Morgan Scally. And those two, those two, by the way, not the whole defense, just those two combined for 10 interceptions that season. 10 interceptions from your safeties. So that's why you're able to blitz, you know, I think something like Utah blitzed like 45% of plays that year, which in average is about 25%. Well, I like to make a statement too. In my opinion, personally, even though I am a BYU fan, I believe Eric Weddle should be a Hall of Famer. Uh, I don't know if you guys agree with that, but to me, Eric Weddle will go down as one of the most dependable safeties in all of NFL history. And he might be going down as one of the greatest leaders on the defensive side as well. I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, but I'm, of course, biased. Yeah, I know you're biased. I am too. But the thing is that he made enough all-pro teams. He made enough of an impact in the NFL and in the safety position that I think he'll make it. All right. So the youth-centered season uh, with a ranking of 19 in some of the preseason polls and 20 in some of the others. Um, the ESPN broadcast open the season showed them at 19. Um, and the Utes were being taken seriously right off the bat, and you could tell because their opening game occurred on a Thursday night, so it was probably the biggest game going on. Um, Utah tends to open up on a Thursday. And ESPN sent out their, like, number one broadcaster package, which included Mike Tirico, a pre-senility Lee Corso. Of course. I shouldn't say, like, a slightly, like, pre-senility Lee Corso. And Kirk Herbstreit. They look the exact same. The thing is that no, he had glasses. Yeah, he, oh, wow. yep, he looked younger. His glasses, Kirk. The thing about Lee Corso is that this game play, was played 16 years ago. He he looks the same. He looks similar. His face gets his face gets slightly bigger each. Lee Corso is one of those people that has a face bigger than his head. That's why he does the mascot headgear competition every every Saturday where he picks you know his team. He puts that on. You know that it's the only place where he can feel at home is when he's inside a mascot head. Correct. Exactly. He gets in that mascot head. He gets all cozy. He's like, I'm home. Still old. 16 years ago and you were old, man. Here I am. Stay. <laughs> Stay the last. So, Utah was looking to avenge the previous season's loss, 20-26, in College Station. Um, and, spoiler alert, the Utes would not be tested in this game. Um, they started it off their third play of the season. Alex Smith connected with Steve Savoy for a 78-yard touchdown in which... Savoy ran a slant and made one cut and then outrun, outran everybody on the Texas A&M defense. Yeah, one thing I want to say with this is uh, because of the quarantine, we actually had the opportunity to watch this game the other day. Uh, this is the first time I've ever seen this game. And Utah right off the bat made a statement saying, we are the better team in this game. And they were not slow to prove that. And this play that Joe has recently explained was what kicked off the entire downfall of Texas A&M in this game. Uh, yes. Um, and to continue that, uh, Utah did have a little bit of offensive struggles after that opening possession. Um, but the first possession of the second quarter, uh, Steve Savoy took the ball on a jet sweep for a nine yard touchdown, which again, he was not touched. Um, later on, Alex Smith added a touchdown run of his own from seven yards. And then just before halftime, um, John Madsen had a 38 yard touchdown catch to put the Utes up 27 to zero. Um, we did have a missed PAT. 
which was something that would interestingly become a trend throughout the season. Um, Texas A&M did add a touchdown before the end of the first half, so it was 27-7 at halftime. Um, and I remember there was a point in the game when Texas A&M scored that touchdown just before halftime. And Tariko trying to make the game seem interesting is like, well, maybe that'll be the spark that Texas A&M needs for the second half. And Lee Corso just flat out went, I don't think so. Corso had seen enough. He knew what was happening. All right. And then the second half, uh, the Aggies defense or the Aggies offense showed a little bit more life, but still couldn't really shut down Utah. Um, Alex Smith uh, had a 37 yard touchdown run. And then a 13-yard touchdown pass to Jerome Wright. Um, two more touchdowns from the Aggies meant the Utah won the game 41-21. to um, Alex Smith finished the game looking like the first round, the number one overall pick. Uh, 21 for 29 for 359 yards and three touchdowns. And then rushing for 76 with two more touchdowns. I think that's something that's really forgotten about Alex Smith's <clears throat> game is that he was an amazing runner. And he displayed that even later in his career while he was with the Chiefs, that he was able to make plays with his legs. I mean, yes, and it's another thing. It's like he, Alex Smith, for whatever reason, I think, well, I shouldn't say for whatever reason. It's because he struggled in the NFL early in his career. People kind of assume that he's small. Because whenever an NFL player struggles, they assume that he's small. Alex Smith was 6'4 and 220 during his junior season at Utah. So 6'4 and 220, and he was able to run like that. Um, so this season... This game right here was the perfect way to set the tone. Starting off, uh, they were a seven-point favorite. They were at home. And then to beat a Power 5 team, a team from the Big 12, by 20 points, that really set the tone. Um, let's see. Uh, we're going to have a little bit more after this about this game, but we're going to take a break first. Here at the Practice Squad, we obviously love sports. And when it's time for us to work out, we want to emulate the athletes we talk about each week. And in Utah, there's only one place we can train like an athlete. At the Training Room, located at 710 South, Utah Valley Drive, American Fork, Utah, 84003. Here they offer on-site sports medicines for all members, which includes deep tissue massage, physical therapy, chiropractic adjustments, and injury prevention training. Lord knows we need that. Beyond the standard memberships, they offer personal and group training classes like their own unique hype training, other classes include Muay Thai boxing, pre- and postnatal yoga, and for younger athletes, they offer sports-specific strength and conditioning training for individuals and teams. Head over, tell them the practice squad sent you. Peace. All right, well, we're back. Let's see. So continuing on with the Texas A&M uh, ass-whooping, um, Dennis Franconi, who was A&M's head coach uh, after the game, was talking about Alex Smith, and he said, well, Smith continues to play as good as he did today. Utah will be tough for anyone to beat. Which, he ended up being correct, but that's just some of those, like, that's just some head coach BS. Where it's just like, well, if he hadn't gone in God mode, we'd have won for sure. That's what you do when you're a head coach and you get your ass kicked, I feel like. It's just like, somebody else is, it's, it's because, no, I didn't do it. One of those things where it's like, if you win, then it's, we beat them even though they did this to us. But then if you lose, it's like, we lost because he did this to us. <laughs> you let him do it, man. Take accountability. I mean, you know, 
I think Dennis Fred Cody only had one more year at Texas A&M. Like, I think he coached there in 2005 and they got fired. So. This is at the time when Texas A&M was not as great as a team as they are now. They were decent. They ended up being 7-5 this year. Oh, that's full game, yeah. So. Uh, all right. And then Smith's performance was so good, in fact. In the first half, there was a point. Uh, Utah was up 20-0. 20-0. They're marching down the field to get that final touchdown before the end of the half. And Lee Corso says... Said this out loud. This is how different a time 2004 was in terms of football. Uh, Lee Corso said, A&M's only chance to win the game would be if they knocked Alex Smith out of the game. In other words, Lee Corso was suggesting to Texas A&M to actively headhunt Utah's quarterback to try and win the game. Which I feel like if you're a quarterback, that's like the ultimate compliment, right? I feel like that's gotta be. I mean, sooner or later we're going to talk about Alex Smith and his toughness, but... If you're Alex Smith, like, you gotta be, like, just gritty with excitement. Like, the only way you could beat me is to kill me. That, that is it. That's, like, James Bond-level kind of action I'm talking about here. Well, and yes, you're right. There will be more during this series about Alex Smith's toughness, but even in this game, and this whole game is on YouTube, if, you, if you're interested enough to watch it like we were. Um, there's no sports, so might as well give it a watch. Um, Alex took a lot of hits because he ran the ball 15 times in this game. And a good portion of those runs ended up being for negative or very few yards because Texas A&M's defense wasn't completely terrible. Their front, their front five, because uh, they usually had like, they had like a weird lineup with four linemen, two linebackers. Um, and their front five was pretty solid and they were hard hitters. They also had one guy who was in his seventh year of eligibility and Kirk Herbstreit was perplexed by that. Was he thinking really hard on those glasses? He was. Glasses Herb Street was not my favorite Herb Street. He wasn't uh, anyone's favorite Herb Street, I would have to say. <laughs> All right. He was thinner, though. He was. And Lee Corso's head was still the same size. His head was the same size. His face was smaller, though. That is correct. Remember, his face gets bigger each season. And when I say face, I mean, like, the outside of the face. Like, it's, yeah. Lee Corso's kind of got, like, a stingray face, if that makes sense. Nope. Not going to make a crocodile hunter joke. Okay. Okay. <laughs> How bold of you. <laughs> All right. I'm out. <laughs> so, after week one, uh, Utah's performance was good enough to get them a little bit of a game in uh, the polls. They jumped from 19 to 17, and then they were going on the road for the first time to play a team that is now a conference opponent. At the time, of course, was out of conference. Uh, that was Arizona, Pac-10 team, uh, which feels weird to say. I've gotten so used to saying Pac-12 that I forget that it was the Pac-10 at one point. Like, I, I, like, going back to my, like, youth and, like, watching football, I remember, like, who used to be in the Mountain West and then the Pac-10. The WAC was a thing. The WAC was a conference that was, I mean, they weren't great, but they were a conference. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, week two, uh, the Utah offense was not as explosive as they were in week one, but Kyle Whittingham's defense was on point they shut down arizona but it did take a little bit for them to do that so if you're a utah fan like i am and you've gotten used to watching them you've come used to the term uh ben don't break basically what that means is winningham's willing to give up some yards over the middle of the field but he's not going to give up touchdowns and that was his philosophy back then as well so four times in the first half of that game Arizona made it not just into the red zone, but within the 15-yard line. 
in those four possessions, they came away with six points off of two field goals and had two turnovers. Wow. Both both forced fumbles. That's crazy. Yeah, four trips inside the 15, and we only gave up six points. And if you look at a lot of the best defenses to the game today, a lot of them have that same mentality of, like, you're going to give up a few yards, but what's important is that you don't give up points in the red zone. And I still think Utah is phenomenal at that defensive tactic. Utah is always known as one of the best defenses in the country, and you can credit Whittingham for that. That's been Whittingham's staple his entire career. You know how many games I've been super frustrated to watch go? You drive down the field and get to the 30-yard line and just lay a humongous piece of poop in the field and get up the ball. What a weird way to phrase that. That's how I feel, though. Jeff feels like elephant turds. That's on the record now. Well, when we profile Kalani Sataki, we'll go ahead and talk about that. No, nah, we're not going to profile Kalani Sataki. Nobody cares. Um, sorry, Kalani. I'm sure you're nice, but nobody cares. He just outrageously throws off his headphones into the wall. Oh, yeah. And then he like does like the dance, and everybody acts like he has swagger. Like, practice squad! Those meddling kids! Dude, if Kaladi Sataki hated us, that'd be so great. I would I would love that so much if Kaladi Sataki was aware of aware of us enough to be mad at us. Be dope. How would I ever get into a BOU game again? Hey, that's the kid right there. Really Kalani. not it's really not a problem for me. <laughs> Alright, yeah, so back to this. Uh this was kind of an odd game. Uh, nearly all of the scoring for the game happened in the first quarter. Utah had a field goal from kicker Brian Borison for 21 yards. Alex Smith had a five-yard touchdown pass to Steve Savoy. And Marty Johnson had a 20-yard touchdown run. And then, of course, Nick Folk had his first field goal of the game, 17-3. Nick Folk had another field goal from 35 in the second quarter uh, to give us a 17-6 halftime. Utah would eventually score again. Um, late in the third quarter, nine-yard touchdown pass from Steve, Alex Smith to Steve Savoy. And this was, of course, where Brian Borison missed his PAT because that was just weird. I've gotten so used to Utah having good kickers, and it's like to look back that maybe the best team in school history had a kicker that was like 60% on PATs. Just, it's weird. You're also kicking from the three-yard line. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people should make that. Urban was looking for speed. He wasn't looking for he kicker was definitely an afterthought. Can you see good? Uh, can, can you kick? Can you see good? Just the qualifications to be a kicker, you got to be able to see good. You got to be able to kick good. Got to be able to see good, and you got to be able to kick good. Remember that. Remember that easy. Big note. Uh huh. Okay, he's got it. All right. So uh, Alex Smith ended up having what would be one of his worst performances of the season against Arizona. Um, he went 12-22, so just barely over 50% completion. Uh, 170 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Uh, Marty Johnson had 105 yards rushing and touchdown. Um, and this game was ultimately probably, in my opinion, looking through the schedule, I think this was actually does closest victory. So, after this game, um, this is when Utah really started getting national attention. Because, of course, at this point, we're already ranked. Uh, we had just blown out Texas A&M. We had just come up with a 17-point victory over a Pac-10 team. So weeks one and two, we beat a Big 12 school by 20 and a Pac-10 school by 17. People are really starting to take notice of us now. you got to also remember that the Pac-10 has always been looked at as a power conference. Even back then, they looked at it as the best conference. So being in a team like Arizona by that margin was extremely impressive. 
Well, this was the time when the Pac-10 had the best team in college football, which is USC. The Trojans. Yes, the the Pete Carroll sketchy Trojan. I just want to say once again on behalf of the Arizona Cardinals, Matt Leinart, you're a freaking tool. Is that just a requirement whenever I bring up USC that you have to be mad at Matt Leinart? Yeah. I can actually understand that as, I mean, I'm not a Cardinals fan, but I would be frustrated if I was a Cardinals fan. I mean, I feel like Trailblazers fans are mad at Greg Oden for being drafted first, and look what he did. Yeah, there's a huge difference with Greg Oden. Greg Oden had an injury. Matt Leinart, if he spent as much time in the practice room watching tape, and yes, it is called the practice room, I'm almost certain, then... It's definitely not called the practice room. It's called room. the practice room. I got the it's side rail. It's called the like, Look, film room. If he where spent, you go to watch film. If he, let's let's what, go practice in the practice room. If he spent as much time in the film practice room <laughs> reviewing tape as he did in the hot tub, the Arizona Cardinals would have a freaking Super Bowl. I don't think they would have won a Super Bowl. Okay, so all that jackassery aside, Utah. <laughs> Utah's next opponent would, of course, be in-state school, Utah State. Uh, and we will cover that in our next episode. But it was just, you could tell after these first two games that that bold ad campaign, you ain't seen nothing yet, that was real. Because this was unlike anything the University of Utah had ever done before. And with that, we're going to end part one. We'll see y'all for part two. You're going to be good at it, folks. Hello squad, this is Easy e coming at you to say that if you've ever had a desire to kick ass, then head on over to Draper Kenpo. Black Belt Master Gator Conley will teach you how to chomp on the competition. At Draper Kenpo, a student learns self-respect, discipline, agility, and most importantly, how to kick that ass. Call or text for information at 801-810-5772. That number again is 801-810-5772. Now, karate chop your way to Draper Kenpo at 720 East and 10,600 South in Sandy. Hi-ya! Squad out.